0: The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 20. Next week you'll hear from Sheldon as he continues in this chapter and then from Sean and then uh, God willing it's our plan to take a bit of a break from Mark after that and explore a few other things for a couple of weeks. Then probably return to Mark uh, again uh, God willing dependent on what's going on return to Mark as we head towards Christmas. So we have been journeying with the gospel writer for several months now. Right at the start of our journey, I explained that the gospel of Mark is a bit like a play. The scenes are vivid and we find ourselves moving quickly from scene to scene as Mark piles on the action. But much of this chapter is a bit different. It's a bit of an interlude in the midst of quickly changing scenes. I see we have a fan of Mark back there somewhere. Hey, yeah, I like Mark too. Yes, so this chapter becomes a kind of interlude in the midst of quickly changing scenes. Here, Jesus literally sits down in a boat to teach the crowds. Here, Mark gathers some of Jesus' teaching and presents it to us, his readers. If you're at chapter 4, just run your eyes over the chapter just for a little bit. This section between verses 1 and verse 34 is the second longest teaching section in the whole book. The longest one is found in chapter 13. But this interlude is not an intermission. It's not an ad break that we should fast forward through or drag the progress bar to skip over it and get back to the action. As Mark relates the story of Jesus' teaching, Jesus calls his audience to give him their attention. And Mark is repeating that demand for us, his readers. Mark is focusing our attention on some of what Jesus taught. And he's doing so because the messages here are critical if we're going to understand this book. We need to hear what Jesus says in this chapter if we're going to understand what we've been seeing in the gospel of Mark and what we're going to come to see as as we continue through this gospel. So please give your attention to the reading of God's holy and precious word in Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Do you know any good storytellers? Now, not everyone can tell a story well. I mean, if you're not a good storyteller, we're not going to single you out this morning. But I have a few friends who were made to tell stories. I've often suggested to them that God puts them into particular circumstances just so they can tell the story. When I hear them tell stories of everyday life, it's hard to believe that the rest of us have similar experiences. But then sometimes the magnificence and the magnitude of their gift becomes clear when we share a day together, when we share an experience together, and they tell the story, and it's so compelling, whether hilarious or insightful or heart-wrenching. Once upon a time, a king came to earth to tell stories, and the stories contain the mystery of eternal life. So says Jared Wilson in his book on Jesus' parables. Stories which have quite rightly attracted the attention of both regular readers and scholars. The living word of God, the maker of language, the one who is the center of the story of reality, came and gathered a crowd of regular people and told them stories. Jesus' parables ranged from proverbs to scenarios to complex narratives. They were simple yet profound. The scenes feature the stuff of this world, yet they reveal insights about the stuff of the new world that was breaking in on the old. One of the dangers that we can face, however, is that our familiarity with the parables can dampen the intrigue. Many of us have been here and read that, and we need the help of God's Spirit to hear with refreshed ears. You see, you see there's treasure to be found here. In this parable, God is concealed and He's revealed He is concealing and revealing. Jesus is hidden and made known, and he's hiding things and making things known. The nature of true discipleship is buried, and it is bursting forth. This text unfolds quite neatly in three parts, and those parts will guide us as we look at it. The presentation of the parable, the mystery of parables, and the explanation of the parable. So Mark first relates Jesus' telling of the parable to the crowds. Then he jumps forward to when Jesus was alone with his disciples and they ask him about his teaching and parables, which is quite a remarkable and unsettling conversation. Finally, he explains the meaning of this particular parable. So let's settle into this story, and with God's help, let's seek out its substance. First then, the presentation of the parable. Once again, Mark is painting for us a detailed and a specific scene. Jesus is teaching by the sea yet again, and a very, crowd, a very large crowd has gathered yet again to hear him. So the crowd management plan was for Jesus to sit in a boat a little bit away from the shore uh, of the sea, which Sheldon pointed out to us rightly, and it becomes very relevant now, was actually a lake. Now, if it was the sea, there would be the tide and it would be loud, but a lake, when the weather is fine, is just flat. Apparently, to this day, there's a bay near enough to the town of Capernaum where the slope of the land rising from it causes it to act as a natural amphitheater. So several thousand people could be on the shore and hear someone speaking from a boat. Go figure. Jesus is continuing to prioritize preaching the word, just as he has since the beginning of his ministry. And Mark has given us no reason to think that his message has changed. It is still what was summarized for us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But here, Mark points out that Jesus was teaching the crowd many things in parables. So, what are parables? Perhaps the most commonly taught understanding of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. If you went to Sunday school, you might have learned that. No, that definition serves because it's memorable, but it's not adequate. Vincent Taylor offers this definition. A metaphor or story connected with the affairs of daily life is used as an illustration of moral and spiritual truths. On the assumption that what applies in one sphere is relevant also in others. Now that's much more helpful and much less memorable. The key insight is the way parables teach through correspondence. What applies in one sphere is also relevant in others. The familiar everyday story illuminates something about the nature of the kingdom of God. But I'm still only answering the question from the standpoint of what makes up a parable and how it works. When we close the bonnet and stop looking in the engine and step back from the vehicle, so we stop looking at the components and the mechanics, but we step back and try to take in the vehicle as a whole, what are parables? Here's where Jared C. Wilson is insightful. Jesus' parables, briefly put, are wisdom scenes. But despite their common setting and scenarios, these aren't scenes of common wisdom. Jesus was not just throwing out some homespun tales of cleverness and ingenuity. The parables function in Jesus' ministry as representative stories about the kingdom of God. This chapter of Mark will feature several parables of Jesus, including sayings or proverbs uh, and similes and scenarios and this story that we're focusing on today. But Jesus has already been speaking in parables in chapters 2 and 3 when he spoke of the sick needing a physician, when he spoke of wineskins or, or new clothes that were being patched or of robbing the houses of strong men. And Mark concludes this teaching section here in chapter 4 pointing out in verse 33 that parables were a regular and normative feature of Jesus' teaching. Before we scrutinize the parable itself, I want, to, I, I want you to take note of what brackets the parable. So Look in, look in your Bibles now. Look at verse 3. Listen. Behold. Now, look down at verse 9. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman who is out in the streets, out in the marketplaces, calling out to people. Just, just, just there. Just calling out. I mean, picture a market and here's somebody. It's like they have wares they're selling and they're calling out. She's offering life-saving counsel to any and all who would pay attention. Here in Mark, wisdom himself is sitting in a boat, calling out to the crowds to listen and to respond to his teaching. Let's look at the parable itself. So, question. Is it just me or is this parable strikingly plain? I mean, it seems to have no particular adornment. It's not like the the story of the prodigal son, you know, that that has drama and just characters and all of this action. I mean, this has no apparent conflict. It has no rising tension. A farmer scatters seed in what hits us as a strangely indiscriminate way. Different commentators go in some different directions regarding the specific planting techniques at the time, whether the ground might have been plowed again after the seed was scattered. But however they approach it, it seems that this scene would have been a common one to the people Jesus was talking to. And as Jesus continues, what seems to be in focus is the fate of the seed. And that depended on where the seed landed. So kids, if you haven't got your categories yet for those four boxes, I'm going to walk through them now and I'll point them out to you. So some seed that was scattered fell on the footpath. So it's a footpath... um, And on the footpath, of course, the earth is tightly packed from the traffic of those who walk there. And that seed is the seed that became bird food. So you're going to have one of your boxes where you have a path and some birds or however you imagine it. Other seed landed on rocky ground. And so second one is rocky ground. And in the shallow soil, it started to grow quickly. But those shallow roots would have been no match for the Palestinian sun. So, those plants withered and died quickly. So, our second one, kids, is rocky ground. And we're going to come back to these again. So, if you miss it, don't worry, we'll be back here. Other seeds still landed in thorny ground. So, number three is thorny ground. Let your parents help you write in the titles. And though that seed grew into plants, it was choked and starved by the thorns. So, it didn't produce anything. Lastly, some seed fell in good soil. So our fourth box will be good soil. And that seed produced grain with a yield varying 30, 60, up to 100 times what was planted. And that's pretty much the parable. Jesus puts a full stop on it by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is basically another parable. It's an encouragement to discernment, which we'll come to understand a bit better a, a, a little later on in the sermon. But you see what I mean about the parable? It's unremarkable. And the whole thing seems so mechanistic and impersonal. What could it be revealing about the nature of the kingdom of God? David Garland provocatively argues the parable by itself has no meaning at all. A farmer goes out to sow and meets with failure and a good yield. So what? At first I was a little bit scandalized by Garland's cynical sounding comment. I mean, this is God's holy word, isn't it? But to be fair, he captures what I was wrestling with. And eventually I came to see what he was driving at. What makes this parable consequential is not the story itself, but your connection to the teller of the parable. What makes it matter is who you're rooting for, so to speak. The obvious point of sowing is reaping a harvest. If it doesn't matter to you what happens to the seed, then there's nothing to see here. But why is Jesus teaching in this way? Why stories and metaphors? I mean, he's gathered a crowd. I mean, what did PR advice be these days? Why not just make a grand announcement? If he's the long-awaited Messiah, why doesn't he just make that clear and call people to give him their allegiance? Jesus' ministry is unfolding in an unexpected way. So is his teaching. So there it is, the first parable told by Jesus at the sea. But Mark has more for us. He inserts here an illuminating conversation between Jesus and his followers that probably took place at the end of the day of teaching. Mark has given us another sandwich, much like we saw him do last week at the end of chapter 3. Let's look at the mystery of parables. Look at verse 10 with me. Alone probably indicates away from the crowds because Jesus isn't literally alone. He's surrounded by his inner circle. Which included the twelve, but also others who were following him. We heard a little bit about these others. They were were mentioned briefly in chapter 3. And what they do know is they take the opportunity to ask him about the parables. That's our clue that Mark has inserted this conversation here to serve us, his readers. The disciples are intrigued and engaged with Jesus' teaching, but they're not getting it. At least they're not getting it completely. And verse 13 shows that their failure to understand included this proverb we've just looked at. But when the disciples ask Jesus about the parables, he explains to them why he teaches in parables. Only after doing that does he explain what the parable meant. So pay very careful attention now to verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables hold a second. We've been traveling along at a steady stride, but now we need to take some baby steps. There's something right here, something right here in verse 11 that we ought not to walk past quickly, lest we miss it. In the parable of the sower, or in the parable we just, just read, a sower is, is scattering seed in what looks like an entirely unselective ma- manner. And it appears that the difference between the soils determine the fate of the seed. We know already from the interpretation of the parable that we read that the seed is the word of God and the soils represent different types of hearers. So if we push that to where it seems to be going, Jesus is throwing God's word out to the crowds and what's going to determine what the word does within them is how they hear and respond, right? Tracking, doesn't that seem to be what's going on in the parable? But now Jesus is making a distinction between you and those outside, between you and them. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. To you has been given. Jesus is not just throwing out seed unselectively. He's handing out secrets to some and not to others. This verse warrants some unpacking. Here, Jesus is saying, when it comes to my ministry, there are two types of people. Insiders And outsiders, you meaning the disciples who are surrounding him asking questions, are insiders. Insiders have been given the secret or mystery of the kingdom of God. They didn't earn it. It was a gift of God's grace. When the New Testament speaks of a secret or mystery, it's referring to something that God concealed in the past but has now revealed. But remember what we've been learning throughout the book of Mark. In the arrival of the kingdom of God, the focus is not on revelation as information. It's on revelation as embodiment. God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. As Strauss puts it, The secret to which the disciples are privy is that the power and the presence of the kingdom of God are breaking into human history through the words and deeds of Jesus, the Messiah. So, here's the question. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? Well, the secret is Jesus. He is the mystery that God has, has con- had concealed in ages past and is now being revealed. As Garland says, the bearer of the kingdom has come incognito. What these disciples have been given is a relationship with the king himself. That should take us back to where Jesus called four fishermen in chapter 1 and where he called a tax collector in chapter 2 to follow him. It should take us back to chapter 3 where Jesus calls to him those whom he desired and they came, including the 12 apostles. And now he's saying, I've given you a secret that is wrapped up in me so that you might understand my teaching. As James Edwards points out, only in fellowship with Jesus do parables disclose the meaning of the kingdom of God. Think about it. Think about the scene we're looking at. Where are the disciples in this story? Well, they're around Jesus. Jesus. They are with him. They are asking questions and receiving answers. The words of God don't make sense when separated from the word of God. He is the key to understanding the parables because ultimately the parables are about the king and his kingdom. And yet these guys still have no idea who he really is and what they really have. There are insiders and there are outsiders. When Jesus speaks of outsiders, that should send us back to the last story, the story we looked at last week in chapter 3, where Jesus' own family is literally outside the house where he is teaching the crowds and teaching his disciples. In that story, we also realize that the teachers of the law, the religious insiders, had also become outsiders. For outsiders, the meaning of Jesus' teaching is concealed in parables. Parables. And both the giving to insiders and the withholding from outsiders are by design. Through the parables, Jesus and the Father are working in concert to reveal the kingdom to insiders and conceal it from outsiders. This is the mystery of the parables. They reveal, yet they conceal. Jared Wilson says, The parables are designed to stir those whose antennae are tuned to their frequencies and to confound those whose antennae are not. Another commentator compares parables to stained glass windows that from the outside look dull and uninteresting, but from the inside reveal these vivid scenes bursting with brilliant colors. Parables are like filters, allowing some things through but resisting some things. They are like magnets, able to attract and to repel. Why, though, is God concealing the truths of the kingdom from outsiders? Jesus tells us why. Why? And and the commentators I read all chorus, that what he says here makes this passage one of the most difficult in the New Testament. Look at verse 12 with me. And what I'll do is I'm going to read from verse 11 so that you, you, you get the continuity. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. In the simplest, most straightforward reading of this text, Jesus is saying that he teaches in parables in order to blind the eyes of some people to ensure that they do not repent in response to his teaching. But that's disturbing and perplexing, isn't it? Oh, there you are. So, of course, it was entirely understandable as I spent my time with the commentators this week. Uh, un- Understandably, yet amazing to witness the game of theological dandy that ensued when we got to this verse. I mean, people were boom flicking, dodging, pooper licking. It was amazing trying to dodge the obvious conclusion. One commentator says, you know, the, the, he, he called what they did. It was, they, he called it offering a wide variety of creative alternatives to explain Jesus' words here. Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, likening what God is doing now in his own ministry to what God did then in Isaiah's ministry. In Isaiah chapter 5, God tells a story where he portrays Israel as a vineyard that he's invested in. He has built them up, he's tended them, yet they bear no fruit or they bear only wild grapes, which was a picture of their obstinate unfaithfulness to God. The commission Isaiah is given in that spectacular chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, is to announce a message that would have a hardening effect on those who heard it. It would cement them in their unrepentance. Now, there's several cases of this kind of divine hardening in the Bible, and it's always difficult to process. But one thing is clear about it. When God does this, it is an act of judgment. In the ministry of Jesus, even in the very parables of Jesus, God is bringing salvation and judgment. Edwards offers this summary, which I found very helpful. The sense of 4, 11 to 12, is that Jesus' parables confirm the state of people's hearts. Insiders who are with Jesus will be given the understanding of the mystery. And outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their unbelief. These three verses, verses 10 to 12, in between the parable and its explanation are the key to understanding the text as a whole. They bring into focus the point of the, of the passage. Jesus' parables are a doorway for those who are with Jesus and listen to him, but a barrier to others. Let me say that again for you. Jesus' parables are a doorway for those who are with Jesus and listen to him, but a barrier to others. They admit insiders, but bar outsiders. By sovereign design and agency, the parables appeal to some, but they resist others. And they are not understood through intellectual ability, but through relationship with Jesus. As a whole, this text at a glance seems to be flat and unremarkable, but profoundly reveals three levels of activity. There is the sowing level, Jesus' unselective preaching to the crowds. There's the soil level. People's hearing of the word that leads to different outcomes. And there's a sovereignty level, God's hidden work of salvation and judgment. When Jesus speaks, how people hear and respond matters. But it's not all about us. God is not hands-off in the work of the gospel. He too is making choices. So Garland summarizes this well. The division between outsiders and insiders then is based both on God's choice and the individual's choice, a paradox that Mark does not attempt to resolve. But why is God blinding the eyes of some? As the story of Jesus unfolds, one of the most amazing things that we're going to see is how this hardening plays a pivotal role in God's redemptive purposes. We've already seen that the religious leaders were rejecting Jesus In time, those same enthusiastic crowds are going to reject him too. And it's precisely because they saw but did not perceive, and they heard but did not understand that Jesus' enemies betrayed and killed him. Their rejection was central to redemption. Even in rebellion, they were advancing God's gracious plans. But was God's rejection of them final? What we know from the rest of the New Testament is that Mary, Jesus' mother, eventually sees who he really is and puts her trust in him. We also know that to be the case for James, Jesus' brother, who eventually becomes a leader in the church. And it also seems to have been the case for others of Jesus' brothers too. At the end of Mark, we meet a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders who puts his trust in Jesus. There are outsiders who become insiders. Now, Jesus will explain the meaning of the parable he taught, what the seed and the soil signify. But first, quite uncomfortably, he rebukes those who are with him for their lack of understanding. So let's look now at the explanation of the parable. Look with me at verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I mean, hold up again. Aren't these The disciples, aren't they the insiders who have been given the secret of the kingdom of God? And they didn't understand the parable? Mark is unashamed to portray the failures and the shortcomings of disciples. We're going to see this more and more as we continue our journey. Mark is presenting the disciples as imperfect people who struggle and are disappointing. They have been given much, but they still have so much to learn. And that's actually meant to encourage us. If they were struggling to understand too, then we shouldn't be ashamed of our own struggles, nor assume that they disqualify us. Discipleship is not about keeping our eyes on our own performance, but keeping our eyes on Jesus and continually coming to him with our struggles. Jesus' second question indicates that in some sense, this first parable functions as a key that unlocks all the parables. Again, that's really troubling if we don't get it, (laughs) So what are we to make of that? Well, in this one story, the parable of the sower reveals foundational truths about the nature of the kingdom of God. It speaks to who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, why it seems to be failing in so many cases, and what discipleship looks like. And the other parables which follow will continue to unfold those same themes. This first parable frames discipleship as listening as the hearing and receiving of Jesus' teaching that leads to fruitfulness. In that sense, as a parable about listening to the word, it is preparing us for the parables it precedes. When we understand it, it will shape how we listen to all the parables. We will not listen to them casually. We will instead lean into them. We will lean into Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave the disciples in their ignorance. He explains to them the parable. Despite their shortcomings, once again, he shows that he is what they need, and he is all they need. And here's what he explains. The sower sows the word. I've said this already, but it's worth underlying. The sower in the gospel of Mark is Jesus, and the seed is his preaching. That's why Mark has placed this section of teaching here in his narrative. Mark has presented Jesus as God's chosen king, tirelessly proclaiming God's kingdom from tone to tone. Yet Jesus is increasingly encountering resistance and rejection. Mark wants us to understand that this was to be expected. As Eckhard Schnabel puts it, The parable of the four soils explains why Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God is not universally and joyfully accepted, but paradoxically met with puzzlement, lack of understanding, disregard, antagonism, and fierce resistance. So the seed then which fell on the path corresponds to those who hear but are unresponsive to the message because of Satan's agency. This reminds us that Satan is not just interested in possessing people. He's hell-bent on preventing them from believing the gospel. The seed which fell on rocky ground represents those who respond joyfully to the gospel but fail to endure the troubles and trials that come on account of the gospel. The seed which fell among thorns represents those who respond and appear to be growing, but the gospel is crowded out of the place of priority that it must be given by the worries of this life, by other priorities like chasing wealth or desires, which Jesus doesn't detail here. But the end result is that these people bear no fruit. What's really disturbing here is that there's an observable effect in two of these three types of heroes who eventually prove unfruitful. The word has an effect, but it's not lasting. But look at verse 20. The seed sown on good soil represents those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, interestingly enough, in varying yields. All of this explains what we've seen already as Jesus has been preaching the word. It explains what we're going to see in the chapters to come. This is what we need to see first and foremost about this parable and to be encouraged by. This is Edwards again. The parable represents the historical inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus. The sower of the gospel. God is at work, hidden and unobserved. In Jesus and... Sorry, I lost myself here. I did something wrong. (laughs) Jesus found me. Praise him. God is at work, hidden and unobserved. In Jesus and in the gospel to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. So here's what we need to understand. Here's why Mark is sticking this right here. We're walking with Jesus, we're journeying with him. And Mark wants us to know that the gospel will be preached. It will be rejected by many and appear to fail in the case of many others. But the, but the good news is that there will be an abundant harvest. As the narrative of Mark progresses, what we're going to see is that Jesus is pulling these same disciples into his mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that all of us as disciples are pulled into that mission. This parable is meant to shape our expectations as we repeat the good news. Some will reject it. Some will respond but fall away or never bear fruit. But some will receive it and bear much fruit. Knowing that this is and has always been the nature of gospel ministry will protect us from discouragement. It will prepare us to be patient and it will dissuade us from trying to manipulate people. But there's more here. This parable is a bit like a West Indian living in the first world. It's doing a lot of jobs. As I've already noted, is that allowed still? Can we say that? I'm sorry. I, I didn't know we couldn't say that. Okay. Well, preach on. Okay. As we've already noted, this parable is for us. It is for disciples. Disciples. One of the ways that we can misunderstand this parable is by thinking it only describes how people come or do not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That the parable of the soul is about what happens when unbelievers hear the gospel. But if you've been journeying with us for a while, you should know better than that. The gospel by which we come to faith is the same gospel by by which we mature and bear fruit. So every time we preach the gospel, this parable is in action. I think also by extension, though not necessarily in exactly the same way, way, every time we speak the good news of Jesus to each other or to people who are not yet believers, showing how Jesus' work invades our situations and shapes our attitudes and actions, the dynamic of this parable is at play. What that means is that this parable is meant to warn and encourage us as we hear the gospel over and over and over and over. As Jesus explains the parable, as Jesus explains this parable, what he's doing and look at that section there from verse 13 down. If you just scan it, what you'll see is that he's repeating two terms multiple times. He says hear a lot and he says word a lot. Jesus is calling our attention to how we listen to the gospel. Remember, the gospel connects to every area of our lives. There is no area that Jesus does not mean to redeem, no area where he means to leave us in slavery to sin and Satan. Last year, around this time, when we explored our value of being gospel-centered, we pointed out that it's kind of like concentric circles. There's a gospel in the center, and then around it, there are gospel truths. That is, reality is created by the gospel. And then around that, there's gospel conduct, the lifestyle consistent with believing the gospel. And we added another circle, which was gospel community, that call to be in community that comes from the gospel. So when we're talking about listening to the gospel, we're not simply talking about listening to the idea that Jesus died or the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What we're talking about is how the whole New Testament fleshes out what it means to walk in light of the gospel. So let's do some work then. Think about the seed which fell on the path. Are there particular gospel truths or aspects of gospel conduct that we're called to that you're resistant to? Eras where you're not even interested in hearing what Jesus has to say. I hope that you're beginning to see that such a list could be quite extensive and it's going to differ for different ones of us. Pride. Anger. Anger. Sexual decision making, personal goals, entertainment choices, leisure time, how we use our money, how we dress, how we speak or tweet. Think about the seed which fell on rocky ground. Are there areas of gospel response where you've started out with enthusiasm, but when the heat hits, you fold quickly because you're not prepared to suffer in that way. Maybe it has to do with sharing Jesus with others and you've had some bad experiences, so you are on the bench as far as you're concerned. Or even identifying yourself as a believer in certain company. Maybe it had to do with maintaining your integrity in a difficult situation. Or choosing to suffer by not taking revenge on others and treating them how they deserve to be treated. Maybe it's our tendency to choose ease over discipline. Think about the seed which fell among the thorns. Are there things Jesus is calling you to as you hear the gospel, but there's a danger of them being crowded out by other desires? Here, as he often does, Jesus highlights the desire for riches as a danger to a fruitful faith. But even good desires can choke the work of the gospel. I've seen in in the lives of people around me how the desire for marriage or the desire to have your own child can become a distraction and leads to disobedience. So can the desire for career success. The worries that we carry about our lives, our loved ones, our future can choke the word. It's hard to listen attentively to the gospel when we are committed to worrying about everything the world around us worries about, rather than casting our cares on the one who cares for us. It's interesting that even the peace that we receive when we do that is in and of itself a fruit of the gospel. The point is, this parable calls us away from indifferent listening, uncommitted listening, and distracted listening, towards determined, serious, and persistent listening. Yet in all of this, it is not calling us to self-dependent listening. We are called to faithful listening, but fruitfulness does not ultimately depend on us. We depend ultimately on Jesus. In Him, in relationship with Him, the Father has given us the secret of the kingdom, He has given us ears to hear and calls us to listen and to respond. And he's at work in us through his word. These parables which Jesus speaks have within them the power to open ears, to hear which is exactly what's reflected in Jesus' miracles. I mean, you might have been wondering as we're walking through Mark, what are the miracles about? And we've talked on one level what the miracles are about. But on another level, all of these miracles are showing Jesus' ability to change situations that seem unchangeable. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Edwards sums up the call to us well. Only one thing remains for disciples to do to hear. Discipleship is not what we can make of ourselves, but allowing both the sower and the seed to produce a harvest of which we alone are incapable. Jesus' parables are a doorway for those who are with Jesus and listen to him, but a barrier to others. This first parable explains what we're seeing in Jesus' ministry, even as it invites and exhorts disciples to listen to him as he proclaims the kingdom of God. Listen attentively. Listen persistently. Don't let his words run off your back like water, but instead fill your cup with them. Drink them in and savor them. We are called to be such disciples in this world of endless distraction. We can only understand Jesus' parables in his presence. He's not calling us to be sleuths, but students and Apprentices. He's not here with us right now to explain his teaching, but he's done one better. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit shows us Christ, the one who is manifesting and embodying the kingdom here in the Gospel of Mark. He is God's greatest story, God's living parable, the meaning of which is only revealed on the other side of the cross. And only to those who have been given eyes to see. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. His power is at work in us as his teaching ushers us into understanding the nature of God's kingdom. We look at Jesus' ministry and we look at the world around us. And it looks like the word of God is being rejected and is failing to produce fruit. But God is accomplishing his purposes, and his word will bear fruit in those who listen with faith. So, how are you listening? Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.